Oh, Jesus. Goddamn. Okay. There we go. We're good. Hello, friends and enemies. Guys, what's we, up? We suck at high fives. <laughs> I got, and I suck at putting my thing the right way around. So, anyway, hi. We're back. Sleep deprived currently yeah. at the time of recording. But, um, yeah. Today we're talking about drugs. Yay. Say perhaps to drugs. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about drugs. So sorry, Nancy Reagan. Um, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) We've all drank. We've all smoked probably or at least been around people who smoke. So in general, both tobacco and (laughs) other things. She said, well, Jonah took a vape. And the the devil's lettuce. (laughs) The electric lettuce. Not what he's vaping. No, no, no. Uh, I got to drive today. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so that's like kind of our story in a way. So we're going to be talking, going through the different kinds of drugs, and we're going to be talking about a brief history of their use and why they were used. Obviously, some of them are more obvious than others, but we're still going to be talking a bit about them. Just before we start, one thing, I don't know if you talk about this at all, but I kind of do. Um the drug scheduling in the United States, oh, yeah. uh, the yeah, way, yeah, it's uh, the way it works. Uh, just briefly, how it works is, it's, um, in the states, the drugs are scheduled from w- one to five or I to V because they use Roman numerals, uh, and one has the most restrictions in regards to access, research, and supply, while five has the least. So. Basically, anything below, I think, three is legal, yeah. but I, I'm not 100% sure on that. But anyway, I only just briefly mention it when talking about drugs because I mentioned what the scheduling is. So that's important for you to know. Anyway, we're going to jump right into it, and we're going to start with everyone's favorite um, pastime. And my choice in industry. <laughs> yeah, the demon drink, alcohol. It is probably the most like the like known specifically to be the oldest used drug. Is it? I I read in places that for as far as we know it is, huh. because there's no definitive. There's probably others. I just feel like yeah, like peyote and ayahuasca and some of those. Well, they probably are, but there's just no yeah. evidence well, to suggest records. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like for example, like um, as my friend Pema told me, alcohol is older than the wheel. So they've been using alcohol longer than they've been using wheels. Or we, we've been using wheels, I should say. So it dates as far back as 7,000 BC in China. And there's also evidence of it dating back to India, 3,000 and 2,000 BC. So between those two ages. And a beverage known as surah, which is made from, from fermented rice. Babylonians worshipped the wine goddess as early as 2700 BC and ancient Greece is accepted as the creating the first mead out of honey and water. The pre-Columbian Andes people of South America fermented corn, grapes, and apples into a beverage called chica. I'm probably mispronouncing that. I apologize. And then during the 16th century, spirits were commonly used for medicinal purposes Alcohol consumption was given positive recognition during this era, even from members of the Catholic and Protestant churches. 
These institutions vowed it as a gift from God to be consumed in moderation for pleasure and health. However, drunkenness was viewed as a sin. Grain spirit and or whiskey is of unknown origin, but is often credited to 1405 Ireland. And the first mention of whiskey production from malted barley is in 1495 entry in Scotland. Champagne made its debut in 17th century France as an invention often credited to wine master Dom Perignon. Alcohol played an essential role in the 13 colonies. The Mayflower shipped more beer than water during its departure in 1620. This was because drinking beer was safer than drinking water during this period. Both English citizens and colonists regularly consumed beer with their meals as opposed to anything else. I mean, this was a common thing. Yeah, I mean, beer at that point is like 2.5%, so it also provided a number of like actual like good calories for working class people. My friend did a a project on um, the history of tea and like its use during this Victorian era and how it became popular. And there are actually like some studies have kind of, sh- I haven't, I have to find them again, but in her research, she found that there's like record of people's health actually diminishing once the switch from beer to tea was made because they were, cons- the working classes were consuming less calories than they were before. So the alcohol itself wasn't good for them, but I mean, it was only three, two and a half, three percent beer. It was just that the beer itself actually was ca- like important calories for them, <laughs> which is my favorite fun beer fact. <laughs> and tea fact. And tea fact. There's an overabundance of corn in the Western frontier in the United States, and this led to an increase in alcohol consumption during the 19th century. During the 1820s, Americans drank seven gallons of alcohol per person per year. So that's like... I've been watching the Ken Burns doc on Prohibition the last few days. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you like think it's a of... mind-boggling stuff. Yeah, like when you think of that number, you're just like, holy shit. It was also during this time that the temperance movement grew. Although it first originated around 1784 with the publication of Benjamin Rush's An Inquiry into the effects of ardent spirits upon the human body and mind. He claimed excessive consumption of alcohol was damaging to physical and psychological health. The book was also an early example of describing alcoholism and how it impairs the sufferer's ability of choice. (laughs) Like, all those aspects are true, but that's only in excessive frat boy drinking, I guess. This work also inspired a coalition of 200 Connecticut farmers to form the first temperance association in 1789, which aimed to ban the production of whiskey. Temperance saw a renewed popularity during the Reconstruction era with groups such as the Catholic Total Abstinence Union of America, or CTAU, and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, WCTU, forming in 1872 and 1874, respectfully. With both groups gaining support and volunteers from religious people, particularly evangelicals, the Anti-Saloon League formed in 1893 and became the most successful temperance group in American history, made up of mainly Protestants of Methodists, Baptists, Disciples, and Congregationalists. And starting in 1906, the ASL worked to have the government issue a ban on alcoholic beverages on a state level, arguing prohibition would eliminate poverty, immoral behavior, and violence, and reduce industrial accidents, improve the family dynamic, and overall make the world a better place. 
The 18th Amendment passed a Senate vote on August 1st, 1917, by a margin of 65 to 20, and passed the House of Representatives on December 17th with 282 votes against 128. Mississippi became the first state to ratify the amendment on January 7th, 1918, and New Jersey was the last on March 9th, 1922. Interestingly enough, Connecticut and Rhode Island rejected the amendment, and therefore they never ratified it while the amendment was in force, which was probably a smart move on those states' parts, because as you'll find out, and as you probably already know, prohibition wasn't very successful. (laughs) People still drank. It led to a rise in organized crime who were bootlegging whiskey. And famously, people who've been to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, will know that Al Capone had bootlegging tunnels in Moose Jaw where he would produce these, they produce the alcohol up there, and then the train line went all the way to Chicago. So you know what the most bootlegged alcohol was during Prohibition? What? Canadian Club. Hey, us Canadians, we make good shit. Yeah, well, I mean, Canadian rum runners were like, it was a big thing here. Even like in Boardwalk Empire, the opening uh, scene, um, like the cut or the like the, the intro. When Nucky's standing on the beach and all the bottles wash up, they're all Canadian club bottles. And that's actually like an allusion to the fact that that was the most bootlegged um, alcohol during Prohibition. We make good shit. So. I wouldn't say it's good. It was just available. <laughs> I guess, but, it's, but it was good enough for them to bootleg it the most. It's better than bathtub whiskey. We'll just go with that it was good. It's better than bathtub whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> also less likely to kill you, so. It had its advantages. Yeah, definitely. So. It became very clear very quickly that Prohibition was not going to work. And it only lasted until 1933. The 18th Amendment was repealed on December 5th, 1933, and the ASL soon collapsed afterwards. It was interesting because watching the... I've been watching this Prohibition doc from Ken Burns, which is on Netflix, by the way, and I definitely recommend watching it. It's so good because Ken Burns is awesome. Uh, I just did everything. And uh, he, it was really interesting because he was talking about um, the beginnings of the temperance movements and stuff and like it's linked to suffrage, the women's suffrage movement. It was really interesting. So yeah, it'd be really interesting to do more about that for sure. Well, the Women's Christians Temperance Union was both a, pro, a prohibition or a temperance union and a suffrage union. Mm-hmm. Women tended to be the, the front runners of these uh, temperance movements. Well, because they saw what alcohol, what they thought was doing to their own. Yeah, exactly. And, like, something that Ken Burns pointed out in the documentary was that, like, I think the biggest sort of spur for prohibition is that the, like, level of alcohol consumption didn't really increase over time, but the strength of the alcohol increased. So once people started drinking distilled spirits that have a much higher, like, alcohol percentage versus, say, like, 2.5% beer, all of a sudden now... People are drinking like 40% alcohol and they're drinking the same amount of it that they used to. And so obviously they're just going to be looser. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) To put it mildly. Well, I mean, one thing I need to emphasize is just how dangerous alcohol actually is. It really is. If you screw up making it, it'll kill you. It can kill you easily. Well, that and also even if you are successful, if you consume like... Enough of it. Enough of it, you'll, you'll die. I think it's just like difficult to remember that alcohol is even because it's been legal for so long and it's just so ingrained in our culture um and honestly especially here in Canada like really reflect I I really reflected on it a lot like lately and uh it's just so ingrained and normal to people that we don't actually really think about how like the fact that alcohol is act it is a toxin that we actively put in our bodies so 
So Lindsay's technically a drug maker. Yeah, I'm a dealer. You're a dealer. I dispense the beer. I mean, I'm not judging, obviously, because I worked in a liquor store for four years. Hey, I like I like where I work. I like making beer. Or, well, I don't really make the beer. I just sell the beer. But <laughs> <laughs> and keg the beer. And keg the beer. But and drink the beer. As I mentioned before, alcohol is something I had a personal vice with, and it did get bad. So I generally do not partake in the consumption of alcohol anymore. I'm not, obviously not a temperance advocate because I quit drinking while I was working in a liquor store and still work there. So it was quite funny, just a brief anecdote. It was quite funny, people coming in the store and being like, what's a good thing to drink? And I'm like, I don't drink. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of hard to explain. I worked with somebody at a similar place to where I work now, and they gave tastings, and they're allergic to alcohol. So they can, they literally couldn't even taste it to tell people what it tastes like. And I was like, why do you have this job? <laughs> like, I can understand, like, you know, in your position, it's like, you know, you used to drink and you don't now, but that's fine. Like, whatever. It's like, she can't even taste it. Like, <laughs> what? It's, it's a job. It gives money, right? It was kind of weird. There but, you go. Yeah. Um, but again, it's like one of those things, like they give you those weird looks when you like say this. And it's just like, no, I'm not like a temperance advocate. I yeah. just don't drink like yeah there's a good reason why but well, i think there is like so much kind of stigma around not drinking and i think it's because the assumption is that you have a problem so therefore that's why you don't but i think a lot of people actually especially in our generation are just starting to not drink as much because we just don't want to yeah it's expensive much. it's not good for you well i mean if people look at me and be like oh you must have had a problem they're correct i did yeah but but i mean in general like i find that when you go to a somewhere and you say you don't drink even like when I've taken you know months or whatever off from drinking I'll be at a social event and be like oh yeah I'm not drinking it's fine they're like oh are you driving and it's like nope I'm just not drinking and it's like and they just can't accept that like it's weird to them that I'm not drinking even though I could be and I think that there is like a weird there is a weird stigma around not drinking because I think the assumption is that you have a problem ironically there's a weird stigma around not drinking like it's kind of the opposite of every other drug, basically. Well, what's so ironic about, like, the stigma being reversed is that what people don't realize is alcohol actually, out of all the drugs that we're talking about, kills more people every year than yeah. any other drug. Which statistically makes sense, too, because more people consume it than any other drug. Yeah, but. that's 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 what that's one thing I knew about, but, like, you got to think about but that. But it definitely does just because, I mean, the level, the amount that is consumed is nuts. I mean, even just, like, if you think about the beer industry in Calgary... Yeah, have you like, seen, have any of you guys seen what Bermuda Shorts Day is like in Calgary? But I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, my point being was more that, like, there's 40 breweries in the city of Calgary alone. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> we literally have an area called the Barley Boat. Yeah, we also have the, uh, the Bermuda Triangle in the Northeast. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We get creative with our names. Yeah, uh, it's pretty great. But uh, shout out Barley Belt. Woo. Um, shout out Village Brewery. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we're doing an event there soon. So yeah, we can't even really be critical of alcohol since we're like literally using a brewery space for an yeah, event. Yeah, well, I mean, but, we can because we can because we're advocating. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, though, usage. it's kind of funny because like even at the brewery, like after Christmas, a lot of people took breaks. <laughs> it was it was too much. <laughs> But yeah, uh, I don't know. Alcohol is a curious one for that. It's just like really funny reminding people that like, especially with cannabis 
legalization, which I guess we might as well transition into now. Because, I mean, I guess we mentioned it earlier, but for those of you who are new uh, or don't know, uh, back in October, Canada became the first G8 or G7 country, I guess, our major economy, to uh, legalize cannabis for recreational use, not just medical use. And which has put us in some interesting positions internationally. But um, (laughs) it was interesting through the whole debate about it because all these people who are super, like, anti-cannabis and have this very strong stance against it didn't have strong stances against alcohol. And it was just kind of interesting to be, like, pointing out that, well, yeah, cannabis has its harms for sure, uh, and it needs to be studied. And that's one of the benefits of legalization is being able to get better science about what it does to people and at what age and whatever. But um, it was quite interesting pointing out to people that like, well, alcohol statistically kills a lot more people and cannabis is almost on the same level as alcohol now in terms of use. So it's just kind of like funny where people, I'm like, you know, alcohol is a lot more, it's, it's also toxic for you. Like it's just cause it's not hurting your lungs doesn't mean it's not good for you. I mean like liver, liver psoriasis and like heart disease, like heart disease is one of the biggest killers of Canadians and alcohol is a major contributor to that. Heart, Heart disease is the number one killer worldwide. Yeah. And so it was just kind of like... There's an irony in your position here. Um, <laughs> but on the on that note, uh, cannabis, it's an interesting, interesting drug. It's just like super weird talking about it now because it's legal here and definitely still not in everywhere else, basically. Well, to our American listeners. If you live in the states of Oregon, Colorado, yeah, California. Yeah, unless you live in those, in those Alaska, states. Alaska, Nevada. Brian, you'll know what we're talking about. Like, yeah. you know how it For feels. everyone else, it's illegal for you still. Cannabis has been used for... A really long time. I mean, I think all of these drugs ultimately have in some form or another. But uh, the first documented archaeological finds were in Eurasia and Africa. But the oldest written record of cannabis usage is actually the Greek historian Herodotus. Where he talked about cannabis use in reference to the Scythians. They would take cannabis steam baths, which sounds awesome, by the way. I was reading this and I was like, Scythians had some... They were on it. They had something there. (laughs) 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 Um... Anyways, uh, his new, uh, new business venture for Panastoria. Maybe? His, his, oh <laughs> his uh his histories records quote the Scythians as I said take some of this hemp seed presumably flowers and creeping under the felt coverings throw it upon the red hot stones immediately it smokes and gives out such a vapor as no Grecian vapor bath can exceed the Scythians delighted shout for joy I have a feeling it was likely something to do with like something like hemp seed or like some form of uh, like hashish distillate but. Apparently, the uh, Scythians had something on the Greeks for their steam baths. But classical Greeks and Romans were using cannabis, and in the Islamic world, it also was spreading across the empire into North Africa. In 1545, cannabis came to the Western Hemisphere, where Spaniards imported it to Chile to use it as fiber. Uh, in North America, its most common use, until people started smoking it, was actually to make, was in the form of hemp. So hemp is a really great material for making things like rope, clothing, paper, like everything. And it's actually been one of the most, with all of the discussion of plastic and the amount of plastic that we have and use and need to stop using, has been a discussion about hemp because it's the best material for so many things that we use plastic for. Like you can make so much packaging and things like that out of hemp, but we haven't been able to because it's illegal, because it's a can, it's part of the cannabis plant. And so because of that, we've been shorted like this great opportunity of a really fantastic material. So that's actually one of the like, more exciting things about legalization is the ability to produce hemp. So on that little tangent, cannabis is only behind alcohol, caffeine, and tobacco in terms of popularity around the world. 
It's believed in the United States alone that over 100 million Americans have tried cannabis with 25 using it within 25 million, you know, within a year. I probably should have looked up a statistic in Canada now that it's legal. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's probably impossible now, you think? Um, no, Stats Canada would have. Here, I can... Yeah, you, I'll, you I'll let you look that. that up. I'll keep talking. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's really popular, obviously. So the psychoactive effects of cannabis, they tend to be more uh, tame, I guess, than some of the drugs that we're going to talk about coming up, but... Uh, you can feel sensations of euphoria, relaxation, some ex- paranoia, anxiety is definitely possible. Uh, it really depends on the strength of the cannabis you're smoking, which now cannabis tends to be quite a lot stronger than it was in its heyday back in the 60s. But something that's quite popular now is the other property in cannabis, CBD. Yeah, so THC is the active, or is the active uh, ingredient that makes people feel high. Yeah. So according to the star... The Toronto Star. Yeah, Toronto Star. 4.6 million people in Canada, or about 15%, over the age of 15, have reported using cannabis in the last three months. And this was in February. Okay, so a lot. Yep. The government revenue, like the tax revenue, they just posted something. It's been like billions of dollars. Like, so much tax money. Which is great, actually. (laughs) I'm here for it. (laughs) It was one of the biggest things I was, like, advocating for, was that I'm actually okay with paying tax. We should pay tax on the things that we consume like this. Well, yeah. And especially because it just goes to pay for other things. But Well, there's an alcohol tax and a sin tobacco tax. Well, tax. Sin taxes, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I got to point out how funny it is that they're called sin taxes. I know. Um, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so THC is the tetrahydrocannabinol is the main compound, main psychoactive compound in cannabis and what generally makes people feel high. Um, it also tends to be what makes people feel anxious or paranoid, if that's the case. It also can make you feel more relaxed or ultimately just kind of knock you out <laughs> if you smoke a strong enough <laughs> strain. So TH, high t- higher THC strains are quite common and popular now. As the use of cannabis has increased and like the popularity of it's increased, it's kind of like everything, right? It's like how alcohol got stronger over time with new processes. The breeding of plants has gotten better, and so... Strains are getting stronger, but especially now with legalization, uh, cannab- cannabidol, CBD, the other active ingredient, has no psychotropic effects by itself, but it's quite popular now for treating things. It's showing some success in helping treat people with anxiety and um, other ailments. It's also typically one of the more active ingredients for treating pain, which is common. Cannabis is one of the drugs on this list that probably has the most, probably one of the only drugs on this list that has the most legitimate medical uses or at least possibly the most legitimate medical uses there isn't really anything proven yet because again science is hard when the substance is illegal (laughs) red tape is a problem and for a long time the samples that were being tested weren't the same as the samples that were on the street so what good is your science if it's not really the same thing so there's certainly some uh there's definitely some problems and some uh some concerns with it, but there are no known effects of long-term cannabis use just because there haven't been any long-term studies. There certainly are. I'm like, would I'm positive there are long-term effects of it because there's long-term effects of any kind of use of anything. But there, there are no studies so far. Also, but, if you know someone who partakes in smoking weed pretty 
regularly, you will notice that there are definitely <laughs> some there are definitely some effects. You're saying something about me. No, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. <laughs> I don't even, I don't really use it that much, but comparatively to a lot. Yeah, no, you can definitely tell. I mean, there's the slang term for it is permafried. <laughs> it's what we used to call people in high school who were clearly burnouts and smoked way yeah, too much weed. Yeah, that's, that's who I'm talking about. I was talking about people who yeah, smoke it I, like Oh, I know, I know. Chimney. Just, I was bugging you. Um, just giving you a hard time. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, so you can definitely tell. It'll be interesting to see in like, you know, 10, 15 years to see some of the studies that come out of the legalization. Even honestly, in five years, I expect we're going to have a lot more data on everything to do with the sale and how it's going. And because I mean, I know that it took a while for some results to come out of Portugal. And especially it's always awkward when these things happen because statistics are so misleading because obviously statistics spike immediately after legalization or something like that, because now all of a sudden you can actually track it better. Yeah. But it was really successful. They, Portugal decriminalized drugs, all drugs, in 2000 uh, to try and combat one of the highest rates of opiate use or injection drug use and also HIV use or HIV in the world at the time. And they've managed to become one of the countries with like the lowest rates of HIV now in the world. And I think that the, the idea behind it is that people are always going to use these drugs. So Uruguay is also a country yeah. that has legalized decrim- cannabis. It's legalized cannabis, but it's also decriminalized old drugs. Has it now? Yes. Okay. It decriminalized old drugs before it legalized cannabis. I remember oh, yeah, this whole thing. Yeah, because they legalized cannabis right before Canada, but it was less of a big deal, I guess, for most places because Uruguay is just so much smaller. Like I remember it happening pretty shortly before. Canada legalized. Yeah, I also think people just weren't surprised that Uruguay... No, well, especially because they had already decriminalized drugs. It was like, eh, okay. And not... They're not a member of, like, the G7 and, like, some of the big world groups, so they don't... People don't think of them as much. Sorry, Uruguay. We still love you. Obviously, we still love you. Respect. Big shout-out to Uruguay. Um, yeah. So, cannabis... I don't know. This is kind of an informal discussion. I have notes, but I'm kind of riffing off of this because it's one of those drugs that I think so many people know so much about that I don't want to repeat dumb information that everyone knows. But, I mean, it's obviously... It can be smoked in a number of forms. And I think now, too, there's so many more ways than you ever used to be able to consume because distillates and um, concentrates are so much better and intense. So, hashish and... uh, Well, hash has been common amongst Middle East, or has been common for a long time. And I mean, it it, stem, it comes from the Middle East. It's actually a really similar kind of consistency to uh, shisha. So for anybody who's smoked from a hookah or gone to a, sh- like a hookah lounge and smoked shisha, hash is actually kind of similar. It's like, yeah. Shout out Lakeside Humidor and... Our unofficial sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, where where we spent a lot of time working on episodes. I think cannabis, kind of like LSD, which I'll talk about a little later, is really mostly associated, probably, truthfully, with uh, things like Woodstock and the hippies <laughs> and people in the 60s and 70s. Because that's kind of, I think, where it reached its most like prominent and more mainstream use. Kind of like all drugs. The countercultures really made these drugs like prominent, but... Cannabis has been common amongst a lot of other groups and people forever. It's one of those drugs that spans age, race, etc. for the most part. Because yeah. it's pretty universal. Although there is definitely uh, a lot of disparity in terms of when it comes to like the criminalization of cannabis, in terms of who actually gets arrested and whatnot. 
So there's that for sure. I don't want to say that all is equal because it's not, but it in is terms of consumption, in it terms seems of consumption, it's quite widely used. So it's one of those drugs that I'm I'm super just interested and curious to keep an eye on as things go. Funny fact about the like the criminalization of cannabis is that uh, cannabis was criminalized in Canada, I believe, in 1923. And the thing about the law that's entertaining is that there is, like, no real record of, like, how it came to be or why or anything. It's assumed that it was probably legal before 1923 because there was no other law. But, like, it, the, the, the criminalization of cannabis in Canada is actually really funny because they kind of just, like, this law just kind of appeared and there's not a lot of record about it or anything. It just was there. And all of a sudden it's illegal. And it's like, oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. (laughs) So uh, that was kind of funny, but it's definitely probably one of the most researched drugs now. And I think because it is so common and it's been used for thousands and thousands of years by um, indigenous populations and everyone. So uh, it's certainly, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's just so interesting. I don't know this. I've, I've probably let this topic down. I'm sorry, stoners who were interested, but I'm happy to talk about it in comments and things. And we'll probably talk about it more. Um, yeah. And there's honestly so many podcasts that are dedicated to the education about it even alone. Like uh, a couple of friends of mine do. Shout out Morgan and Jaggy. Um, it's There's so many already that I feel like of all the drugs to spend time on in this episode, it probably wasn't the one that needed the most time. So we can we can move right along Yeah, now. we can move along. But just a couple last things is like... Also, I, I promise we were not high during the recording of this episode. No, we weren't. We're just a little tired. <laughs> Very tired. Yesterday, different story. But anyway. <laughs> um, Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> for the record, the first two are the only drugs on this list either of us have ever tried. Yeah, exactly. Or will ever try. This is why I said don't expect too many personal experience stories because they're re- this is it. It's pretty limited. Yeah. <laughs> so hallucinogens are probably something you've all heard about. And when you hear hallucinogen, you probably immediately start thinking of Acid rock, pretty much. (laughs) So shrooms, the real name is psilocybin mushrooms, also known as psychedelic mushrooms, magic mushrooms, or mush, (laughs) which I've never heard of before. Neither have I, and that's also kind of not an appealing name. No, no. I think I like magic mushrooms the best, though. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a single species, but an assortment of mushrooms with psilocybin substances which produces similar effects to LSD, mescaline and DMT. I have I have here the symptoms are altered perception of time and space, feeling as if the world is fake, dreamlike feelings, rapid mood swings from positive to negative, sensitive mood, dizziness, fatigue, dilated pupils, difficulty concentrating, drastic change in blood pressure and heart rate, nausea, anxiety, uncharacteristic thoughts, excessive yawning, effects usually begin around 30 minutes after consumption and all generally last between four to six hours. So evidence from prehistoric rock art near Villa de Humo, Spain, suggests shrooms have been used in religious rituals as far back as 6,000 years ago, with art in the Tesselai caves suggesting usage of the Psilocybemurai in Algeria. I just butchered that name because I can't speak Latin. It was largely consumed by the Mesoamerican people for religious ceremonies, 
divination, and healing during pre-Columbian times and into the present day. The Aztecs and Mazatecs named them genius or wondrous mushrooms, known to the Aztecs as, excuse my pronunciation, Tionacatl, which translates to God or sacred mushrooms. Following the Spanish conquest, Catholic missionaries worked to end the practice of consuming shrooms, believing they allowed the Aztecs to communicate with devils. <laughs> this becomes a, as, as it seems to be in Panisaria, this becomes a common practice. <laughs> they worked to transition Mesoamericans to the sacrament of Eucharist. Eucharistia. Eucharistia. While much of the population had converted, the remote rural regions continued to use shrooms, and they continue to use shrooms to this day in their ceremonies. Mesoamericans, particularly the upper class, would consume shrooms during festivals and large ceremonial gatherings. They would only be consumed during these rare occasions due to the rarity of finding these mushrooms. They were also known to drink chocolate and eat shrooms with honey, often fasting prior to consumption for sacrament. Shrooms are illegal in most countries, including Canada, the United States, interestingly enough, Mexico, most of Europe, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. However, they are legal in Brazil, Bulgaria, Jamaica, as well as many others. I don't know if any of you know people who've done shrooms, but I, I do. And I do, yeah. generally people say you have to be relaxed going in. The most bad that I found is that people do have bad trips. And that's because certain mushrooms... Well, they do with all... I mean, all hallucinogens can create that. Yeah, and like certain mushrooms have higher concentration of the psilocybin. So that'll... Like if you're a first-time user and you try it, then that's not going to be a good time. But anyway... Ooh, one more thing on magic mushrooms. Yes. That I don't know if you came up with and you saw in your uh, research at all. But it's starting to show really good uh, results in treating cluster headaches. Really? Yeah, so this has been really commonly kind of, it's been, I guess, like mostly, there's no real hard evidence. It's mostly exp personal experiences and stuff from people, but uh, I do know, actually do know someone who suffers from cluster headaches who takes mushrooms for it. So essentially, my understanding for most people who suffer from cluster headaches is that you can take mushrooms like once a month and it essentially prevents you from getting cluster headaches. Mm -hmm. Drugs Inc. that that show that National Ge Nat Geo does. Uh, mostly, I have a problem with that show because there's a lot of just like very pro war on drugs things that I have problems with. But it's interesting anyway. Uh, they were talking about a lot of people who don't use mushrooms for any other reason, just use it for cluster headaches. And there's begun becoming a lot more research, also generally for hallucinogens in terms of mental health. But yeah, mushrooms are showing like really good promise. I know people who have to do, who have to do that because the thing about cluster headaches is that nobody knows. There's no really known cause of them, and there's also no known cure for them because regular conventional drugs don't work. Right. And they're very painful from what yeah, I they're, understand. They're called the suicide headaches for a reason. Yeah, yeah. So magic mushrooms are showing some promise on that. There we go. So moving on to a plant that seems to be getting more traction now and more known, uh, peyote. And what peyote is, it's a cactus plant located primarily in the Chihuahuan Desert of the Mexican state of Cajula, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, and San Luis Potosi. Sorry, Mexicans, I think I started off fine and then fucked up. Uh, these 
cactus plants, they have a psychoactive flower that grows on the top of these plants. And that is what's consumed. And what the side effects are, altered body image and sense of self, altered perception of time and space, euphoria, anxiety and panic, feeling relaxed and detached from surroundings, visual and auditory hallucinations, illusions, increased intensity to emotions and sensations, drastic mood swings, paranoia, spiritual experiences, synthesia, temporary psychosis, effects begin between 20 minutes and 90 minutes after consumption and can last up to 12 hours. Now, when I when I list all those side effects, of course, you're not going to experience all of these in one experience unless you have a really weird weird and bad or experience. Ever. Like some of some things, like there's certainly some symptoms of or reactions, I guess, to cannabis use that like I know people who have never, I've never felt some of them or some people have never felt certain things and that's just very much like about every experience is different. Exactly. So if you experience all of these, like even with like magic mushrooms at one time, at one time, then you're having a really interesting trip. Probably, <laughs> probably not a good one. For no, most no. Of it, but. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, so the overall experience is described as highly unpredictable. Yeah, I, that's... People know we're fans of The Simpsons. If you've ever seen the episode where uh, uh, El Mysterio Voyage to Homer Simpson, mm-hmm. where he goes on that weird, he eats the insanity peppers and goes on that weird journey. Yeah. Yeah, that's, the, the apparently, according to people that I know, that is the closest it, that anyone has ever gotten to what a peyote experience is like. like. Yeah, my friend Ian, and Ian, thank you for letting me I first reveal your name and let me tell you what this is like. He and his wife did peyote and he said what it looked like was that the whole background of where he was, he was in New Mexico mm-hmm. and it was a like beautiful rock landscape. <laughs> and he said that the, it just looked like the landscape was an oil was a painting that was melting. Mm-hmm. And then when his wife was talking to him, he said it, his her voice would go from Mickey Mouse to Barry White. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like weird. Like it wasn't speeding up or slowing down. Yeah. It was just going really high to really low. And it was just like, okay. Like he said, it was quite the interesting trip. But he was so glad that he did it because it was just, a, as he put it, an experience. So one of the first, it was one of the first hallucinogenic plants brought to the attention of the Europeans. And it was estimated by Spanish chronicler Fray Bernardino de Sanguin. And what he had to say was, quote, Those who eat or drink it see visions either frightful or laughable. This intoxication lasts two to three days and then ceases. It is a common food for the Chicameca, for it sustains them and gives them courage to fight and not feel fear, nor hunger, nor thirst. And they say that it protects them from all danger. So it is either chewed or consumed as a tea. I've heard it more commonly consumed as a tea. I think that's probably the most common, in my understanding, is most people consume it that way. Yeah, I think shrooms can be consumed yep, the same they way. they can be. Um, typically with shrooms, though, because they taste all way worse, I hear. Um, they You can get them, um, like, they're, like, coated in, like, this, like, gelatin, essentially. Mm. They're, I think they're called jelly caps. And... Uh, they're, they make them at least bearable, I've heard, because yeah. apparently mushrooms taste horrible. Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. But I've heard that peyote tea tastes, it's delicious. Yeah, like, yeah, it tastes like, like tea. I think that's why peyote is typically consumed via tea. It's just, like, better. Whereas mushrooms just taste like shit. Pretty much, when you yeah. you put them in tea <laughs> or eat them. 
So, uh, as mentioned before, consumption is believed to bring people closer to the spiritual world, and Ian says that he actually believes believes it now <laughs> because of just what he was experiencing. So, peyote is used in rituals accompanied with music, dancing, reading of scriptures, prayer, or sharing spiritual experiences and ideas. Rituals last all night, beginning Saturday evening and ending Sunday morning. European missionaries condemned the practice of consuming peyote, claiming it led to com consumers communicating with demons. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they probably said the same thing about cannabis at some point. Yeah, probably. It is used and highly respected by the Native American church, which is also more commonly known as the peyote religion, although I don't think they like that. And it is also known as peyoteism. The NAC combines elements of traditional Native American beliefs with Christian teachings. Peyote is used as sacrament in this religion, and today has approximately 250,000 adherents in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Card-carrying followers of NAC are allowed to transport, possess, and use peyote for religious purposes. What's interesting is that peyote is actually legal in certain circumstances in the United States, while the growth, possession, and use of peyote is completely legal in Canada. So the peyote is one of those drugs that, like, it's not that well known, and it's not something that big governments tend to worry about. No, mostly because it's been mostly just used as a traditional, like, in traditional practices for yeah. most for Native Americans, like, I, mostly. I'm, yeah, I mean, now it's become a tourist thing. Like, people, people I mean... My friends traveled to New Mexico to do it. Just and like people go to the jungle or to go to the Amazon to try Iowa, which you'll... Which I'm about to get to. Yep. Another big drug that's actually really starting, like in the last couple of years, I only heard about it maybe a year ago, ayahuasca. So it is a plant brewed for consumption in traditional spiritual medicine ceremonies of the people in the Amazon basin of South America. So these are countries that accompany... A company just like Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, Peru, most of northern South America. So it contains alkaloids, which act as a monoamine oxidize inhibitors. Say that five times fast. So the side effects include mild to extreme euphoria, loss or softening of ego, feeling of connectedness to the universe, Increased feeling of love and empathy, sense of inner peace, acceptance of, of self, others, and the world as a whole, life-changing spiritual experiences, emotional healing, and mental ther mentally therapeutic, claims of physical healing properties, including curing cancer, sedation, strong visions, meaningless visual noise, auditory hallucinations, altered sense of space and time, open-mindedness towards magical thinking and paranormal, paranormal identification, Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, body aches, alternation between sweats and chills, various symptoms similar to flu or food poisoning, increased heart rate and blood pressure, paranoia and panic, feeling as if one is dying, and the effects last between 4 to 8 hours with 20 to 60 minutes for effects to occur. Those last bits probably don't sound very great, but... The thing is, is that that's actually a general consensus of what ayahuasca is like. It's known as... It's a, not a pleasant experience. It's not at all. It, you vomit, you... Apparently, you mostly vomit for a fair bit of the experience. 
some people experience diarrhea. It does make you feel very weird, but you do get a trip. <laughs> so it's used as a traditional sacrament to the indigenous people of the Amazon. Lower dosages of ayahuasca are used for medicinal purposes and effects last six hours, peaking after two. The hallucinations are believed to lead to illumination and psychological introspection. Vomiting and diarrhea can actually purge the body of parasites and worms, and this is what it is commonly used for, especially in the Amazon, because unfortunately those are common ailments of indigenous people. Mm. And since they don't have easy access to traditional, like, not traditional medicine, but contemporary med- medicine that'll help deworm people, mm. ayahuasca is actually really beneficial because, like, you're just purging this mm-hmm. whole thing. First recorded by Europeans during the 16th century by the Spanish and Portuguese, and it was believed to be the works of the devil. All those doing the drinking game, take a shot right now. Contemporarily, totally, pop- we should totally post like a drinking game to go with this, but that seems like people will die. Counterproductive. Yeah. Contemporarily popular with ayahuasca retreats forming in various parts of South America, and it's actually shown to reduce depression and actually reduce the symptoms of PTSD. It is also becoming very popular with people undergoing drug addiction because you just purge your body of all those toxins during these ceremonies. It's said too that during the actual like hallucinations and stuff, it's not even so much about like the vomiting, like the physical aspect. It's like the mental aspect as well. Like you actually do work on yourself like while you're in this state. Like the actual evidence, whether or not it's really working or if it's just anecdotal is kind yeah. of still. Well, um, my friend Chris went on an ayahuasca retreat because he was addicted to amphetamines. I'll get to that in a bit. Mm-hmm. But he, after he got off it, he would still feel cravings towards it. And it was very difficult for him. So we went on an ayahuasca retreat. And was able was only only did one session and f- never felt the need to take drugs again. He, as he said, he purged the remaining toxins from his body, but he also purged the the fe- the feelings from his body as well. Because you do get that very intense spiritual experience with it, and you feel like you're you're looking in in yourself and whatnot. Now, the problem is that, as Lindsay mentioned to me before, is that this is, the ayahuasca retreats have actually had a neg- negative impact on the tradition because it is largely seen as disrespectful to the ceremony, especially since a lot of these people who are giving ayahuasca to people are not actually shaman. They're not properly dosing, like using proper dosages. So people are having... It's actually really dangerous. As a re- there's actually been a lot of deaths on these retreats too because they're not being properly like, there aren't they're not doctors. They're yeah. not people who really know what they're, they're doing. Just random people. Well, the biggest problem with ayahuasca tourism, which is the point I was trying to make yesterday, was that it's not so much like the ceremonies and stuff. Like that's obviously you have to be careful about that. It's actually more to do with the fact that the demand for ayahuasca has driven the price of ayahuasca up. Ah. So it's made it inaccessible to the indigenous cultures that rely on it for things like their actual health. Right. So it's just like what happened when the Western world decided quinoa was the best thing ever, is that it drove the price of quinoa so high that the people who actually needed to survive on quinoa couldn't afford it. Mm. And that's why like ayahuasca tourism is dangerous is because, I mean, also people can die, but mostly that it's um, actually has like an unintended consequence of like driving the price of this. It's actually medicine for people and it's driving the price of it up. Right. And uh, 
And then also, yeah, the, the cultural aspects of not really understanding proper, like, traditions and not necessarily, I don't know, having the right to use it. Like, right. Um, well, because these drugs do mean things. Yeah, exactly. And that we understand that. But, like, just, again, continuing to play devil's advocate is apparently there are places in Peru. They have these ayahuasca retreats, and it's actually improved the economies in the poorest areas of Peru because... I think it's like anything, like any sort of tourism, though, if it's actually, like, regulated, it'll be better. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Peru is named ayahuasca as part of their cultural heritage, so yeah. it is actually officially recognized by the government of Peru as a as something of, con- of considerable cultural significance to the country. So I'm pretty sure that they treat it, I mean, I'm, I might be just speaking out of my ass here, but hopefully they treat it respectfully in those places. But yeah, so it is understandable why ayahuasca retreats can be damaging, but can also be beneficial to it depending on how it's done. Yeah, I have weird feelings about it. I have weird feelings about all kinds of cultural tourism like that, though, that's like, because I mean, I have a similar issues with, or at least I see the problems of like, volunteerism, right? You see, it's mostly, yeah. I don't know. It can definitely tourism can be really beneficial for local populations, but can also, it can also be really detrimental if it's yeah. not done properly. And I think like the biggest problem is I don't think it should be on those countries to have to do all the work. I think it should be on the people who are seeking this tourism to actually understand what they're doing, because that's like the biggest thing I've definitely noticed is that people travel to places and don't really understand like any of the actual cultural or historical anything behind what they're doing. They just think it's cool or, you know. Which is fine, but I mean, I don't know. It shouldn't have to be on the places to have to deal with all the problems. I agree. Uh, anyway, it's moving on. <laughs> Classic hallucinogens are often referred to as psychedelics, which is kind of the ones I'm going to talk about more. Um, and the term was coined to express the idea of a drug that manifests a hidden but real aspect of the mind, essentially, is kind of what the idea behind a psychedelic means. It's obviously commonly applied to any drug with perception-altering effects. So most commonly, LSD, mescaline, DMT, mushrooms, etc. Pretty much all hallucinogens. So I guess some more than others for sure, though. So lysergic acid dithalamide, LSD, also known as acid, is one of the most famous hallucinogens around, pretty much. It's forever ingrained in pop culture and everyone's minds. (laughs) LSD was first synthesized on November 16th, 1938 by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman at Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland. It was synthesized as part of a research project for medically useful ergot alkaloid derivatives. So all of these hallucinogens are alkaloids and they have, I guess, certain or they were being researched for certain medical uses. And so LSD was synthesized not entirely like by accident, but kind of by accident. Um, <laughs> its psychedelic properties were discovered five years later when Hoffman himself did actually accidentally ingest an unknown quantity of the chemical. So no one really knew that LSD was psychedelic until the scientist himself accidentally <laughs> consumed a bunch of it and had an interesting time, I'm sure. The first intentional ingestion of LSD occurred on April 19th, 1943, when Hoffman ingested 250 micrograms. I don't really know how much that actually is in terms of dosing, but meh. I'm sure he had a, He also probably had a time. Um, he said that this would be the threshold dose based on the dosages of other ergot alkaloids, but he did find the effects to be a lot stronger than he anticipated, so 
I'm sure that was great. <laughs> Santos Laboratories introduced LSD as a psychiatric drug in 1947 and marketed LSD as a psychiatric panacea, basically. So it was marketed as, quote, a cure for everything from schizophrenia to criminal sexual perversions and alcoholism. So it had a very, it was like those classic, you know, classic old school medicine where it's like, here's some cocaine. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, LSD was kind of part of that. Uh, but more for mental things, I guess, than physical. The way I describe LSD is that during military experiments and whatnot, if it, if it wasn't working, give them LSD. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm actually about to get to that. Um, <laughs> so LSD, the fact that it was, I think, invented in a lab or at least like synthesized in a lab tends to um, like add a certain level of relevance to it in the, we- in Western, in the Western world a lot faster because it's like, well... Western scientists created this, so obviously it must have a use. And so it's taken more seriously. And so it's been used in so many trials by governments and universities for a variety of reasons. But essentially all of them are trying to figure out a possible use for the hallucinogenic powers of the drug. Um, I think there's a common belief amongst everyone who's worked around it that there is some kind of benefit here. We just don't know for what. Like, I think that humans are always, especially in medicine, I think we, because we've always been finding new drugs to make things better, like even the ones that we use for recreational purposes, there's always like this thing in the back of our minds. It's like, surely there's a way that we can use this for good, right? Not just for fucking around. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty fun though, so <laughs> whatever. Anyway, one of the most famous projects that was ever undertaken on uh, LSD research was called Project MK Ultra, and it was funded by the CIA. And it was a program of experiments on human subjects with the intention of identifying and developing drugs and procedures to be used in interrogations in order to weaken the individual and force the confessions through mind control. The project was organized through the Office of Scientific Intelligence of the CIA and the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories. A lot of drugs were used in this project. It wasn't just LSD, but LSD was one of the most used drugs in experiments. And they essentially the question they wanted to know, it's kind of ridiculous, and I don't, I'm not going to talk a ton about it just for time and whatever, but go read the book, Men Who Stare at Goats. It's, it's worth it. The movie's also worth watching um, if you're too lazy to read the book. But if you know anything about it or the person running it, he was pretty crazy. So this General Stubblebine by any chance? Well, I think he was involved in this project. There's a lot of people involved in this project, but I mean, obviously. But anyway, because <laughs> the CIA funded a lot of LSD trials all over North America, but it wasn't really clear. Like they funded the CIA funded LSD trials in Canada, but nobody really knew about them because they weren't obviously funded by the CIA. It wasn't, there was no poster saying funded by the CIA. So yeah, there were some crazy people involved. Anyway, the aim of this was the CIA wanted to know if they could make Soviet spies defect against their will using LSD in interrogations and wanted to know whether or not if they could do it, than whether or not the Soviets could do it to their agents. So it's basically based around pure paranoia of, you know, 50s CIA Cold War thinking. McCarthyism at its finest. Just add hallucinogens. <laughs> See what happens. Uh, um, so the project was officially underway in 1953 and experiments included administering LSD to, quote, people who couldn't fight back, end quote, as one agency official put it. So this included mental patients, prisoners, drug, drug addicts, and sex workers. 
So they essentially picked on people who they felt that no one would care about or miss if something went wrong. (laughs) In one case, they administered LSD to a mental patient in Kentucky for 174 days straight. They also administered LSD to CIA employees, military personnel, doctors, other government agents, and members of the general public, including Allen Ginsberg in one San Francisco trial. Famously, he actually signed up for one at Stanford, but it was funded by the CIA. Uh, Drugs were often administered without the subject's knowledge or consent a lot of the time, which is a violation of the Nuremberg Code the U.S. had agreed to after World War II, after all of the medical experiments during the Holocaust. So, you know, kind of upsetting that less than 10 years later they're already ignoring it (laughs) but there's a history of these types of drug trials happening or medical experiments happening in the united states see also tuskegee the aim of the this particular one was to find drugs which would bring out deep confessions or wipe a a subject's mind clean and and program them as a robot agent (laughs) uh mk yeah MKUltra's researchers later dismissed LSD as too unpredictable in its results, and the project has been more or less over, was more or less over by 1967. But, like, it was kind of crazy because a lot of people began to become a lot more uncomfortable with the random administering of LSD to people because a general was admitted, this, like, I think it was a general or a high-up official was administered LSD by accident, and he ended up killing himself. And it was highly criticized, obviously. And so after that, there was, I guess, a bit of a divide. But the CIA was like, nope, we're going to keep going. But a lot of other serious medical professionals and people who were involved started to back away. And that's why it eventually kind of died is because the serious people involved in these studies are like, okay, we've crossed the line. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So the CIA drug trials have ultimately like taken up most of the discussion about the history of LSD trials. But what people, so what's not really known is that some of the most extensive LSD drug trials actually took place in Saskatchewan, in Canada. So like some of the most extensive research done on LSD was actually done in Canada and Saskatchewan. Dr. Erica Dick at the University of Saskatchewan currently in the history department has been resurrecting this history, and it's super fascinating. I'll just give you guys a little taste anyway. But scientists such as Humphrey Osmond and Abram Hoffer, who were based in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, and then later in Saskatoon, uh, determined through self-experimentation... <laughs> That LSD and mescaline, which I'm going to talk about after, uh, have similar effects, but they chose to focus on LSD. Early trials suggested that LSD had the potential to improve mental health care, advancing a theory that explained mental illness as the manifestation of a metabolic of metabolic functions. This assertion pointed to the possibility that mental illness was inherently a biological entity, thus could be studied and treated with the latest medical technology. Which is awkward, but also an interesting base when you consider, like, how psychiatric drugs have been developed. So Saskatchewan at the time was committed to establishing sweeping healthcare reforms. Uh, this is, you know, during the Tommy era, well, kind of the whole Tommy Douglas, like Medicaid Saskatchewan's at the forefront of, of better medical care. And so the mere possibility that Saskatchewan based researchers might be developing cures for mental illnesses generated unparalleled political support. So the government was all in, but they couldn't find federal funding or the scientists couldn't find federal funding. They went to Ottawa and they couldn't find any. But the government of Saskatchewan pulled through because they were committed to trying to find better solutions to not just physical health, but mental health. LSD's ability to suspend one's sense of logic, reality, and comfort captured Osmond and Hoffer's attention and prompted them to consider the drug's value for psychiatric research. LSD seemed to produce a, quote, model psychosis, which provided a new method for studying symptoms of mental illness. 
If an illness could be treated by taking a chemical substance, then surely a close biochemical investigation would reveal the same for mental illness. They also saw the potential for therapeutic use for LSD. Volunteer subjects regularly reported that this experience offered new insights or clarity and personal enlightenment. Despite these findings defying Hoffer's biochemical explanations, they felt it was worth further considering. So Osmond wanted to apply LSD to treating alcoholism, as they thought LSD might be able to help alcoholism patients by helping them through detox without some of the painful physical side effects. They tested this theory on two patients and both were deemed successful. This research continued with Dr. Colin Smith, a psychiatrist at University Hospital in Saskatoon. Despite the psychoanalytical language used in describing the experiences of their subjects, the scientists maintained that their approach was primarily biochemical. The results of these trials appeared in medical literature and seemed to indicate a better rate of recovery than was offered by any other approach, including traditional ones like AA. So sort of similar to what people are claiming or showing ayahuasca is doing was what they were trying to do with LSD. Colleagues in North America began to question their results, however, and despite between a dispute between scientists in Saskatchewan and others producing a study in Toronto broke out. So shocking, a West versus East battle in Canada. <laughs> um, and essentially the, the question was like whether or not the studies could really be replicated. So at this time, there's still a lot of questions about the scientific method and good science in terms of using it and replicating studies and especially on like live patients and humans. Yeah, how we've treated the, the volunteers and like medical subjects is uh, still evolving. Medical ethics is fascinating. Anyways, uh, Sven Jensen, working in Weber in Saskatchewan, published a f- published the first controlled trial involving LSD and alcoholism in 1962. His findings were that 38 out of 58 patients treated with LSD remained abstinent in the follow-up period. He maintained that this methodology underscored the superiority of LSD treatment. Further questions about LSD and research were soon moot, as a moral panic over drugs and specifically LSD began to take hold at the beginning of the 1960s, and governments throughout the Western world began to criminalize the drug, despite the the protests of certified psychiatrists who saw the value in the clinical study of the drug. So because the drug was produced by a laboratory in Switzerland, that's how people getting samples to test were actually pretty easily like available up until this point. Sandoz Laboratories was selling LSD for institutions to study. I think it, by this point it was like already illegal for recreational use, but you could at least study it easier. And there was more willingness to study it. People were still curious about it. But... The recreational use of LSD really began to began to rise during the 60s with the culminating in Woodstock in 1969 with the hippies and the counterculture. Fears began to grow about the danger of it. It <laughs> thing about moral panics is that they're always kind of, I don't know, not about one thing, but a lot of things. And uh, LSD kind of became the poster child of the drug that was feared because it was associated with the counterculture and hippies, free love, hate Ashbury in San Francisco, and all of the general degenerative behavior that people saw or claimed to see. So the actual dangers of LSD in terms of whether or not it's particularly addictive and things are very questionable. I don't think there's any real recording of of physical addiction to hallucinogens. Um, There are real dangers in terms of overconsumption and uh, things like that. There's been some police officers who who raided labs that got sick because they weren't wearing proper... PPE and it will absorb through your skin. So you can certainly like actually take too much and do very, very real damage to your, to yourself. But anyways, the moral panic was, I think really more about the, the hippies and, uh, you know, the kids have gone awry 
as most moral panics do, but you know, um, <laughs> most of the culture of the 1960s though actually can really be related heavily to the use of LSD, at least upon reflection when it comes to our culture in terms of music and movies and this, the, the culture that we actually created and consumed was so heavily influenced. There's, so these things called acid tests took place. They were really popular. So LSD was deliberately taken and accompanied by light shows, film, pro- film projections, and discordant improvised music known as psychedelic symphony. And acid tests and the recording of them helped to popularize LSD through road trips and publications such as the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. So basically people would do this and then they thought it was a really great experience and they just spread it. And that's what really made the use of LSD recreationally interesting was the pairing of it with these other experiences. Thanks to bands that took part in the acid tests and related events, music of the time was also heavily influenced by LSD, like I said. So famous ones, bands such as Jefferson Airplane, Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, the band that Janis Joplin was part of, and the Grateful Dead are probably the best examples. But they all took part and produced music through which they intended to convey some of the experiences with the drug. So LSD had the most influence probably on the Grateful Dead and Deadhead culture. It's like the most associated, but certainly songs like White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane are related to the the use of drugs. But um, as the counterculture began to fade through the 60s, so did the use of LSD. It's still commonly used recreationally, and it's seen a resurgence in popularity, but it did really kind of die off after... The hippies kind of died off. And I mean, a lot of it was intentional, too. I think that, like, there was a lot of, like, people wanting to force the hippies and things like that to kind of die out. It wasn't really... And, I mean, how sustainable that whole thing was anyways, I don't know. But that's a discussion for another time. (laughs) Um, But a similar drug that I talked about earlier was mescaline. Uh, Mescaline is naturally occurring in the peyote plant, uh, so it's a psilocybin as well. It's traditionally been used for well over 5,700 years (laughs) It was first isolated and identified, though, um, in 1897 by German chemist Arthur Hefter and synthesized by Ernst Spitt in 1918. Uh, a lot of German chemists involved in the synthesizing of these drugs. <laughs> Mescaline produces a similar effect as LSD, uh, though it's considered to be less powerful. Much like LSD, uh, it was involved in a lot of criminal, sorry, not criminal, clinical trials. Um, <laughs> criminal trials. Criminal trials. Uh, Probably, but it was mostly involved in a lot of clinical trials, especially with trying to treat, like, therapeutically, especially with trying to treat things like alcoholism. It induces a psychedelic state similar to LSD, but with more unique characteristics, its um, subjective effects may include altered thinking processes and altered sense of time and self-awareness and closed and one-eye-open visual phenomena. I don't know what that means exactly, but that sounds interesting. Um, Apparently, the prominence of color is distinctive. Recurring visual patterns observed during the mescaline experience include stripes, checkerboards, angular spikes, multicolored dots, and very simple fractals that turn very complex. Aldous Huxley described these self-transforming amorphous shapes as like animated stained glass eliminated from light coming through the eyelids. He described mescaline in his essay, The, The Doors of Perception, in 1954. He compares mescaline to Soma, the universal antidote in Brave New World, a drug with, quote, all the advantages of Christianity and alcohol with none of the drawbacks. As with LSD, mescaline can cause synesthesia to occur, especially with the help of music. An unusual and unique characteristic of mescaline is, quote, the geometrization of three-dimensional objects. So the objects can appear flattened and distorted, similar to the presentation of a cubist painting. Mescaline had some popularity in the 50s with the beat generation. This generation was heavily influenced by writers of the time, such as Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, and William Burroughs. 
and they paved the way for the hip, the hippies of the 1960s. I just want to talk about this one trial really quickly because it's kind of funny, but Harvard professor Timothy O'Leary began recruiting poets and musicians and artists to be participants in his studies, collecting accounts of their trips. These accounts have been put together in a new book. I haven't read it yet, but I really want to. It's called The Timothy, Le- the Timothy Leary Project Inside the Great Counterculture Experiment by Jennifer Ulrich. And she collected several trip reports from Ginsburg and his partner, poet Peter, his partner, Peter, poet Peter Orlovsky, Jack Kerouac, and graduate students and academics at Harvard and Leary himself. One report written from Orlovsky reads, quote, are we, a, are we God's ball in his back pocket or are we God with the sun in our heart brain that beams high when on psilocybin? Something beautiful happens and I want more of it, end quote. Uh, another from Kerouac reads, quote, I came home and had the first serious long talk with my mother for three days and three nights. I learned that I loved her more than I ever thought. Uh, Leary eventually abandoned these clinical protocols, or just eventually abandoned clinical protocols altogether, and distributed the drugs to his friends and students, just because he felt like it. Um, he was fired in 1963 because his dispensary gained a lot of attention and Harvard wasn't really for it, so... <laughs> Uh, ultimately, the Beat Generation used a number of drugs experimentally, including benzedrine, cannabis, and other psychedelics. Uh, they approached them with this experimental mindset, but their use was inspired broadly by intellectual interests, and many beat writers felt their drug experiences enhanced creativity, insight, or productivity. So basically, you can trace a pretty direct line from like the, the hippies of the 60s back to the Beats, the Beat Generation, which became known as the Beat Nicks a term that was associated or coined in 1958, a portmanteau on the name of the Russian satellite Sputnik. It suggested the beatniks were far out of the mainstream society and possibly pro-communist. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the next category known as amphetamines. Woo! Which is surprisingly actually probably one of the most available Oh, yeah. And you'll you'll understand why after get through the first one. So what's interesting about amphetamine is there is a type of drug under amphetamine just called amphetamine, mm-hmm. more commonly known as speed. And what's confusing about the name speed is that every single amphetamine it's on here <laughs> is called speed except for ecstasy. So it is officially known as amphetamine sulfate. It is a class A drug illegal for possession and sale. So it is like the highest... What is like up there <laughs> in terms of illegality. So it is an off-white powder or crystals also available as a paste. It is either snorted, dabbed into the gums, smoked in cigarettes, consumed orally in a practice known as bombing, injected or mixed into drinks. Side effects include are highly addictive Increased alertness, increased energy, increased excitement, increased agitation and aggression, anxiety and panic, high blood pressure and increased heart rate, insomnia, confusion, damage to the blood vessels, decreased immunity, brain damage, psychosis, cardiovascular collapse, and death. Yeah, this shit can kill you. Apparently a lot of a big common thing is, is your heart just like Explodes. stops working. It basically like, yeah, you wear it out. Yeah. You literally I, wear your heart out. <laughs> basically. I mean, yeah, there is like talks, like you just said, it's literally described as your heart explodes. Mm-hmm. Doesn't exactly no. explode, but I mean, your blood vessels can it burst. The, the vessels to burst. Which is pretty much, yeah, it is exploding. My friend Chris was addicted to this back in the day. He's since gone off it with, I mean, prison kind of helped. <laughs> but... 
Yeah, he was. This is what he was addicted to. And one of the scariest stories he ever told me is when he was in prison. He said he went to sleep one night and then woke up in a hospital two weeks later. So it's not that he lost time, mm-hmm. like he lost tra- like track of time and had memory loss. He was asleep for two weeks, mm-hmm. and it was basically his body attempting to keep him alive. Yeah. So that's how scary this fucking drug is. Sleep is actually um, random aside, real quick. My dad's been listening to this podcast that's kind of related to this book that's been written about sleep. And um, sleep is actually more important than water or food. So you can actually live longer without water or food than you can without sleep. So if you were to stay up, I think the limit is five full days without sleep, you will die. Jesus. Like You'll that, be seeing pink elephants before that. but Yeah, like you, you, you will die if you don't sleep. So... You can actually go longer without water or food than you can without sleep. Yeah. So that's my random aside. Well, yeah. I mean, the reason why people take speed is because it makes them more active. Is a recreational drug first synthesized in 1887 in Germany, and it's mainly used to increase energy for better productivity. It was in the early days, it was seen beneficial as it helped dilate bronchial sacs in the lungs, and it would clear passages for those suffering from asthma and hay fever. But also just yeah, those with the clear up your hay yeah, fever. <laughs> but also those those with the common cold. So it was actually prescribed to treat it'll, the it'll, common cold. That'll clean your sinuses. <laughs> yeah. But I mean if you think about it, all cold meds are full of caffeine. Oh yeah. So like yeah, but this is like beyond caffeine. I know, but so the concept is the same. Yeah. So in 1932, amphetamine was used in the benzedrine inhaler for market use, and it became a massive success in over the counter medication. <laughs> no so, shit <laughs> yeah so amphetamine was approved in 1937 by the american medical association for treatment of narcolepsy <laughs> which i think yeah uh, i mean that'll also do the job <laughs> yeah post-encephalactic parkinsonism and minor depression 1939 saw the discovery of the harmful effects of amphetamine and by then, teens and young adults were using it as a cheap high by taking amphetamine strips out of inhalers and swallowing them. The thing that's like, sorry, just random interjection again. Yeah. The thing that's funny about like all the things they're using amphetamines to treat is it's like, yeah, it'll work, but it's a lot like killing an ant with a flamethrower. Yeah. Like it's a, <laughs> yeah. It's a bit much. <laughs> well, well, or, or as, uh, as Robin Williams would have said, it's like having chemotherapy because you're tired of shaving your head yeah like it's it's just it's, it's just intense. a bit much yeah <laughs> it'll do the job but it's it's gonna it's yeah it's yeah but here's here's the interesting thing it became the most widely used abused drug in the 1930s more than anything yeah <laughs> so it was also distributed to soldiers during reds. the second what reds reds benzodrines benzodrines yeah reds so it was distributed to soldiers during the Second World War to focus on fixing fatigue and to diminish feelings of fear. And this was on both sides of the conflict. By 1962, the FDA estimated over 200 million amphetamine pills were in circulation in the United States, with annual sales of benzodrine tablets exceeding $500,000 in 1941 and continuing to rise to $2 million by 1945. Amphetamine is still used in prescription medication for treatment of ADD, ADD and ADHD, but use of the substance is limited in these meds, and its use is actually overall in decline. So, pills that are medication that's still 
uses amphetamine in it are Adderall, Focalin XR, Vivicin, and, and Ritalin, and much more. So if you ever hear about like kids getting high off of ADD and oh. ADHD medication. Super good documentary on Netflix called Take Your Pills. That's about it. Watch it. It's really interesting. I mean, it's kind of ironic that they use amphetamine to treat ADD and ADHD. Maybe I'm overthinking it here, but anyway. So really quick, I'm going to really quickly run through one I found called Cathinines. It is a naturally occurring stimulant found in the plant cat, common in the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa. It is also known as MDPV, Magic Crystals, M1, and my favorite of all, Monkey Dust. It is a widely used party drug. It is usually usually snorted, but also bombed, made into pills, and smoked. It is rarely injected, but it can be injected. It creates a feeling of euphoria and empathy in users with increased talkativeness. Side effects include heart damage, overstimulating of the nervous system, resulting in fits, anxiety and paranoia, reduced inhibitions leading to risky behavior, and cathinines are still relatively new, thus their effects are still widely unknown. And what I, what, the reason why I had to include this is because cat is by far the most popular plant in Yemen, making up one-sixth of the agricultural land and one-third of the country's water supply because cat is a greedy when it comes to water. The plant's water-intensive growth has led, to, has led to the major water crisis in the country. And, you know, I mean, the war definitely has helped, but a big reason why they're so short of water on Yemen is because of the popularity of cat. And I mean, in a country that's already largely desert, it's a dangerous thing. Next is uh, ecstasy, which is probably the most famous party drug, especially if you grew up during the 90s. I mean, Lindsay and I, not so much. We were only... Well, uh, so MDMA is ecstasy, and it's real popular now. Yeah, but it was especially, it grew popularity during the 90s, that's yeah. for sure. So get out your pens because this is the, uh, this is the chemical name, methylene dioxymethamphetamine. It is also known as MDMA, XTC, Molly, Mandy, Dizzle, or Pink Superman. I like Pink Superman. <laughs> Pink Superman, it makes it sound fun. So it's most commonly known for its pill form, often in different colors and resembling candies such as rockets. Also in powder form, it can be swallowed or dabbed into the gums. Effects last between three to six hours and it creates an increase in happiness, feelings of affection towards others, energizing improvements in the sense of touch and increases sexual arousal and sexual experience. So what I learned mostly is that like a lot of people, they'll take this drug their inhibitions will get down so they'll be more sexually active. And apparently it just gives you the best sexual experience of your life. THC is also really common. Yeah. That and LSD. Actually, a lot of these drugs are pretty much known for making that type of stuff better because they elicit. Yeah. But I've heard the bad thing about that is after you've done it and then you have sex without ecstasy, it's just not like you'll never experience something as great again. Yeah. Just weird. That's actually also something I've heard about, like meth itself, because obviously they're related. But um, is that like part of the reason it's so hard to get off of amphetamines is because of the pure like euphoria and joy that you feel. Is that it just like you sink into this massive like black hole of depression that's worse than any other depression you've ever felt because 
you know that you'll never feel that happy again. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. It gets really bad. So side effects include anxiety and panic attacks, confusion, paranoia, psychosis, pupil dilation, tingling, tightening or moving of jaw muscles, which is known as gurning, increased body temperature and overheating, increased heart rate, nausea, kidney and heart complications, memory issues long for long-term use, depression, blurred vision, chills, and eventual collapse from exhaustion. So what I've heard is the most common cause of death with ecstasy is overheating. Yep. I've heard stories of people literally cooking alive yeah, so just that's from the why body temperature. Most deaths at music festivals that you ever see or raves are because people, I mean, you're mixing alcohol and ecstasy anyways, bad, but because you can't moderate your body temperature, you tend to, and you're outside in the sun, for instance, like you're going to get, they basically overheat and die. Mm-hmm. That's like the most common cause of death at music yeah. festivals. It was first patented in 1913 by German chemical company Merck as a diet pill. I, again... It'll work. Yeah. <laughs> However, Merck decided not to market it. Urban legends of U.S. Army using ecstasy as a potential truth serum, but it's probably bullshit. First recorded user was renowned chemist Alexander Shulgin of Berkeley, a man who tested and de- detailed over 179 psychoactive drugs. Wow. Tests between 1977 and 1985 for potential therapeutic use for psychotherapy session, but it was outlawed in 1985. It is, as we stated before, a recreational party drug. It became particularly popular during the 90s club era. Notable users amongst the club kids scene in New York City, and if you've heard of the club kids, they are fucking crazy. They're people who would dress up like very eccentrically and then promote these clubs. And then people would show up to these clubs just to see them. It was crazy. Probably do an episode on them eventually. Recently, in test trials for treatment of PTSD, and it's showing a high success rate, journalist Ben Anderson underwent the treatment and also reported on the success of other other individuals. The treatment is known as MDMA-assisted therapy with emphasis on the therapy. Sessions are once a month for three months, with one dosage taken per session, and therapists help lead the patient to come to their own conclusions on how to help themselves. So sessions last seven to eight hours. The MDMA enables participants to gain the benefits. The first round showed that 75% of participants were PTSD free at the end of three months. So it's really interesting that such like drugs that we know, like have these big stigmas around them for good reasons are shown to now having beneficial treatment for people like PTSD sufferers and the like. So MDMA is an interesting, like it makes sense that it would help because of the feelings of euphoria and whatnot, but it also makes you more introspective. Yeah, I think um, a lot of these drugs, the hallucinogens in general, and then like the amphetamines, some of the amphetamines. Well, I mean, amphetamines never really left medical research, but... Uh, hallucinogens are coming back as well, like in terms of studies for similar reasons, right? Like just, well, there was all this research that was showing like something, like clearly there was something here and we, we killed it because of moral panic. But well, one thing I need to, one thing I need to point out is actually use of ecstasy has gone down lately because a lot of people have been dying because it turns out the pills that they are being given are not ecstasy pills. They're fentanyl pills. Yeah. 
Uh, fun fact, some of the highest quality MDMA produced in the world is produced in Vancouver. I can believe that, surprisingly. But yeah, it's on the decline now because of the dangers and just people don't know. It's either it's either fentanyl pills like mixed with ecstasy and that's awful. Yeah. But yeah. So moving on, we have meth, which is better known as methamphetamine, also known as crystal meth, ice, glass, crank, or yaba. It comes in tablets and as powder, but is most famously in crystal form, mostly smoked, but also snorted or ingested orally. It increases energy, feelings of exhilaration, alertness, and even arousal, and it lasts between 4 and 12 hours. Side effects include agitation and aggression, confusion, paranoia, sudden and severe weight loss, irregular breathing, extreme perspiration, sores, pupil dilation, burns and track marks, Rotten and blackened and broken teeth, rapid skin aging, paranoia, anxiety, hallucinations, mood swings, insects on the skin feeling, which is why people are often seen pecking at their skin. And it also severely damages the nervous system, which causes what's, if you've heard of, they're called tweakers. And it's because they twitch, because they have no control over their nervous system. It is known as a poor man's drug, as it is extremely simple to make. Uses ingredients that can be purchased at hardware stores such as battery acid, aluminum, etc. It is used recreationally, extremely addictive with addiction known to occur after one hit. Withdrawal is severe and occurs only 24 hours after the last hit. First synthesized as a more potent and easy to make amphetamine in Japan in 1919. It is, was used by both the Axis and Allies as means to keep soldiers awake. Japanese military gave high dosages to kamikaze pilots prior to suicide missions. Methamphetamine use became an endemic in Japan post-war due to supply stores becoming accessible to the public. It was prescribed as a diet aid and antidepressant during the 1950s. It became popular amongst college students, truck drivers, and athletes as a stimulant leading to a spike in substance abuses. Easily attainable, inject, injectable methamphetamine made the percentage of addicts worse during the 1960s, and it became an illegal substance in the U.S. in 1970. The American motorcycle gangs be, would become the leading producers and distributors of the drug afterwards. So groups like Sahel's Angels and Banditos. Until the Mexican cartels. Exactly. Mexican cartel labs sprang up in California during the 1990s and were able to produce 50 pounds of meth in one weekend. Meth use in the United States rose from 1% to 5% during this decade. The United Nations declared in 2006 methamphetamine was the most abused hard drug on earth. Today, meth, is, meth use and production is down due to difficulties in obtaining pseudoperidrine. Pseudo it's not down in Canada. No, definitely not. But <laughs> a result of new glo- it, but it's a, it, this is a result of new global regulations on the ingredients. And of course, people know methamphetamine as the drug made by Walter White in Breaking Bad. It is scary how easy it is to make this drug. Like it is unbelievably easy. Well, and that's why I don't think 
like I'm curious about like statistics saying meth is down. Like obviously it's harder to get some ingredients, but because you can use a lot of ingredients and a lot of them are ones that you can't really just ban. Right. But like the thing is that, yeah, you can use a lot of these ingredients, but it doesn't matter what combination you use. It has to have these certain ingredients in it. It does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So it's like, it's not like you can just like take battery acid and bleach and blah, blah, blah and use it. It it won't work unless it has like. Yeah. But my point being that like the chemicals required are in a variety of different chemicals. And so unless you were to ban all of them or force the chemical makeup of all of them to change, you can't really, it won't be eliminated. No. Just because it is so easy to make. Right. And again, it is known as a poor man's drug because it's easy to make. Yeah. Which is also why it hits like rural areas the hardest yeah. it's easy yeah it's easy, especially on in rural areas because it's easy to make without getting caught right unless you blow yourself up and what's interesting is that if you're caught producing meth you can in the united states you can be charged with producing a weapon of mass destruction because it is counts as a chemical bomb you hear about meth labs just blowing up and it's because the fumes are so so flammable and explosive that anything can set it off and it basically contaminates a good area with yeah. dangerous chemicals. It's, and also there was a, there is a way you can make it too. Um, I was again watching Drugs Inc. I don't know why I've watched so much of that show. Um, okay. And uh, you can make it like in plastic pop bottles by shaking it, which is also super dangerous, but like moderately less dangerous than having a lab. I don't know. It's still fucked up, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Breaking Bad, you see him going from working in a in a camper van to working in a f- actual fucking lab. Yeah. And there are labs like that all over the place. So, I mean, you got your guys working in a trailer, which is like definitely low grade stuff. And then the high grade stuff is like made in a lab. But not to say that there's much difference because it's still you're breathing in straight up chemicals and poison. It's poison. Well, I think what makes like crystal meth so poisonous is because of like the you're not using the pure form of the chemicals required to synthesize meth yeah (laughs) right like if you're synthesizing it in a lab it's a lot different because you're not using drain cleaner (laughs) to get to that point (laughs) (laughs) exactly moving on to the cocaine to the cocaine cocaine also known as caffeine's cooler brother but with a camaro and a leather jacket um what Shout out to my friend who <laughs> told me that. Uh, yeah, cocaine, also affectionately known as coke or blow. Or blowcane is my one friend refers to it. Or snow, actually. It's also called snow a lot, too. I'm sure there's other names for it. I don't really care. So it's a stimulant like caffeine, which is hence the comment. It's like caffeine's cooler brother with the Camaro and leather jacket. Because um, it's pretty much caffeine on steroids. It comes from the coca plant which is grown in South and Central America. But it was first isolated. The actual compound of cocaine was first isolated in 1860. Its most common form is a powder, which the user inhales, but it can also be smoked or injected. So something that's quite common and actually what killed Belushi from SNL, what killed him was uh, injecting cocaine and heroin together. Speedballing. Speedballing. Cocaine produces an intense feeling of happiness or agitation. Um... Kind of either or. Uh, and it can cause a loss of contact with reality and other feelings of really strong euphoria. Um, it raises the blood pressure and heart rate. And it also has a much smaller number of accepted medical uses than other drugs. <laughs> like, a lot fewer. But it can actually be used for numbing and for decreasing bleeding during nasal surgery. 
Okay. Interestingly enough, cocaine carries a significantly higher risk of addiction due to its effect on the reward pathway in the brain. So cocaine's pretty similar to amphetamines in the sense that it pretty much is just like you're wired and you're really happy about it. <laughs> so cocaine is pretty much exclusively known as a party drug. So, you know, it has two medical uses, but it's pretty much exclusively known as a party drug. But indigenous peoples in South America or South and Central America, have been chewing coca leaves for over a thousand years. The Spanish who colonized these areas did not believe indigenous claims that the leaves gave them energy and strength, but soon realized that the practice of mixing coca leaves and tobacco and chewing it induced great contentment. That was a quote. Um, the stimulant and hunger suppressant properties of coca have been known for centuries, but the cocaine alkaloid wasn't achieved until 1855 by German chemist Friedrich Gedke. In 1865, Friedrich Wohler asked a scientist aboard the Navarra, an Austrian frigate sent by Emperor Franz Joseph to circle the globe, to bring him a large amount of coca leaves, and he received them in 1859. He passed on the leaves to Albert Niemann, who was doing his PhD in Germany, who then developed an, an improved purification process. He described every step he took to isolate cocaine in his dissertation on a new organic base in the coca leaves in 1860. It is in, or in it Niemann named the alkaloid cocaine after the coca leaves. The dissertation in the British Library is in the British Library in London, like currently. The Western medical field was quick to exploit the possible uses of, its, of the plant. Studies were conducted to try and demonstrate its analgesic properties, its possible ophthalmic uses, as well as potential as, as an anesthetic. It was found to be a respiratory system anesthetic, a nerve block anesthetic, a peridural anesthetic, and in 1898, a spinal anesthetic. <laughs> um, cocaine was also used to treat... So the, the A-I-N-E on the end of cocaine is actually a reference to, like, Novocaine. They're related. The same kind of property. So cocaine was also used to treat morphine addiction in 1879, which is really ironic. Um, and introduced as a local anesthetic in Germany in 1894. I think I wrote down 1994, and that seems really wrong. So I'm going to go with 1894, <laughs> given the timeline I'm working with here. I'm like, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> um... Yeah, again, the treating morphine addiction with cocaine is a little bit like you said, like, you know, it's kind of like using amphetamines to deal with a cold. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit much. <laughs> and also, you're just replacing one addiction with another in this case. But anyway, um, famously, co cocaine was also in the original recipe of Coca-Cola before cocaine was made illegal. Cocaine also appeared in wine. So Italians started mixing coca leaves with in the winemaking prospect process to make a hopped up wine essentially <laughs> <laughs> cocaine reached popular culture by the victorian era serving as sherlock holmes's favorite vice to offset boredom when he was not working on a case forgot about that anyway cocaine became popular amongst stevedores on the mississippi river and in early and in the early 20th century you could buy a small box full from drugstores in memphis for a few cents something that's really common was i saw images of like toothache pills having cocaine in them because <laughs> novocaine apparently Cocaine numbs things for you. It was actually... So it has like some, un, some interesting and unfortunate uh, racial connotations here too. So the use of cocaine was actually encouraged by white employers for their black laborers because it's a stimulant and that means they'll work harder and faster and also it's a hunger suppressant so they'll eat less. <laughs> its success as a stimulant also meant that the Germans experimented with it, including it as an ingredient in future pet pills. So the Germans obviously used amphetamines. In World War II. There's a really interesting book called Blitz, Drugs in Nazi Germany that I listened to this summer. And it was all about the use of the amphetamine, all, all the pet pills that the Germans used during the war. And uh, they started experimenting with adding cocaine to their mixture. But it was never obviously done. 
The thing about cocaine now, especially, is that it has a very, like, romanticized image. It has a very glamorous image because it's really popular amongst rich and powerful people. And it became, like, the quintessential drug of Wall Street and, like, glamour in the 1980s. So it remains a popular recreational drug, and it does actually, like, a described feeling by people who use cocaine is that it makes them feel rich and fabulous. And I think a large part of it is, like, the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of seeing all these images and, you know, all this stuff about how cool cocaine is, and then when you do it, you feel that way. But it's really highly addictive. (laughs) It's certainly caused a lot more problems than it's definitely solved. So a cheaper, less pure version of cocaine is called crack. And it was devast- it's been devastating to poorer communities, especially amongst the black population in, in the United States and probably to some extent in Canada. I actually don't really know much about crack use in Canada, admittedly. It was introduced in inner cities and became like the primary use of cocaine. It created a big addictions problem that still exists. So there's this dichotomy of cocaine where it's really seen as a, a drug of the rich and powerful, but it also served to like destroy poor black communities, especially. Powder cocaine always stayed constant, though. Uh, so c- crack is consumed by smoking it. Powder cocaine has always stayed relatively constant um, because powder cocaine is typically viewed as the most pure cocaine. Even though studies now on cocaine being found in North America is that by the time it actually is getting here, it's so stepped on that the purity is actually like less than 20%. So st- usually to stepping on means adding additives like baby powder, talcum powder, up to like drain cleaner and other nasty things. Um, actually, so a big problem right now is that fentanyl is ending up in the cocaine stream. So while crack does disproportionately affect the poor, uh, especially black communities in the United States, cocaine as a whole actually is popular among all socioeconomic strata. <laughs> so across age, across gender, across demographics, across social and political and religious values, cocaine is like real popular. So cocaine's kind of made a resurgence in the United States, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s. It had a bit of a resurgence and it's really started to come back. But the biggest actual like cocaine boom in the world has actually been in the UK and Australia. So like it's been it's super popular in the UK and the rate of cocaine use in Australia has been doubling every year, which isn't really that surprising. Also, given the like use of meth in Australia is huge. But anyway, um, (laughs) With that said, in 2005, the estimated U.S. cocaine market exceeded $70 billion in street value, exceeding revenues by Starbucks. Oh, my God. The tremendous value or the tremendous demand for cocaine has always been particularly strong amongst people with income affording luxury spending because it's obviously not It's cheap. expensive as shit, isn't so it? So expensive, yeah. Um, it has status as a party drug and as a result is insanely popular in the party scene, which is also its most famous 1980s image is all the Wall Street goons going and getting wrecked on cocaine have you seen the wolf of wall street honestly even wall street like the movie yeah, i know like just wall street like but or wolf, psycho or, or psycho, like yeah. american psycho like any of those pretty much anything from the 1980s i have seen the movie yeah so in 1995 the who and the un Inter- interregional crime and justice research institute or the unicri announced in a press release that they would publish the results of the largest global study on cocaine use ever undertaken. But an American representative in the World Health Assembly banned the publication of the study because it seemed to make a case for positive uses of cocaine. So remember at this time, well, and even now, the United States is like heavy into its war on drugs. And so it's in Colombia burning coca leaves and trying to arrest people and waging war against cartels and mostly failing. A lot of innocent people die. Um... (laughs) 
so they're in the midst of this. So an American representative decided that this report made too many positive case positive uses for cocaine, so it was banned. Part of the study was recuperated and published in 2010, including profiles of cocaine use in 20 countries, but are unavailable as of 2015. So some of it got made available, but there were some court challenges which put it all back under wraps, which is really disappointing because studies like that are actually incredibly important. But yeah, cocaine is also most famously associated with the country of Colombia, where it remains the largest producer of cocaine in the world. Powerful drug cartels such as the Medellin cartel, led by Pablo Escobar, <laughs> have made billions of dollars processing, smuggling, and selling cocaine in the United States. The Medellin cartel operated throughout the 1970s and 80s, and at one time, they supplied at least 80% of the cocaine supply in the U.S. and brought up to $60 million a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they played a large part in destabilizing Colombia, in general, with their ruthless tactics. They bribed police and government, killed everyone created a tenuous economic position. Poor farmers were often forced into growing coca, either due to actual threats by cartels or because it was the only crop that would pay. Some estimates put the death toll during the Medellin cartel's heyday at around 3,500, including 500 Medellin police officers. But the actual number is impossible to assemble because of the shaky legal structure in Colombia. Colombia remains the largest producer of cocaine in the world, which has actually seen a recent increase in the acreage of coca leaves. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the, the groups that everyone's hearing about, FARC, mm-hmm. they were totally producing cocaine in order to fund their... Oh, yeah. I mean, they, I mean, they're not the only ones who did that. They're not the only insurgency group who did that in Colombia. No. But they were the big one. Oh, yeah. Now we move on to a category called the, the Associates. Mm-hmm. And we That's start... Really yeah, these, this is... And we start off with a drug known as phenocyclidine. But it is better known as PCP. Other than that, it is also known as peace pills, hog, animal trank. And there are zero peas involved. Yeah. Belladonna, rocket fuel, and bombing fluid. Angel dust is probably the most famous one. Never heard of hog before. Bombing fluid seems relevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it is, comes in a powder, crystals, pills, liquid, or oil. Color ranges from white to brown, depending on the purity. It is sniffed, swallowed, or injected, depending on the state of matter. Also smoked by spraying onto tobacco or by dipping cigarettes into liquid PCP. Changes how people view reality. Perception of time has changed, and it acts as if time has sped up or slowed down. Brings on extreme positive moods, and it makes you gullible. So side effects include loss of coordination and and physical body control, increased body temperature, detachment from reality, convulsions, feeling of invulnerability leading to reckless and sometimes fatal behavior, aggression and violent behavior, shallow breathing and can cause the lungs to fail, anxiety and panic and can lead to severe brain damage and permanent psychosis. So it's not a fun drug. The idea that it was first synthesized in 1926 is actually untrue. What was actually synthesized there was known as PCC, which is a related substance, not as popular. It was actually first synthesized by chemist Victor Maddox of Park Davis, Michigan, through experimentation with synthetic analgesic. It was submitted for pharmacological testing with positive results leading to rapid development of PCP. It was approved for investigational use under the name Cernal or Cernalan in the 1950s as an anesthetic. 
However, the mix of long terminal half-life and side effects led to its removal from market and limiting to veterinary use as an animal tranquilizer in 1965. It entered the street scene during the 1960s in Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco, the neighborhood famous for being the center of the hippie movement and where a culture of psychedelic drug use thrived. I mean, the the name Haight-Ashbury at this point is pretty synonymous with all that. It was made illegal in the United States in 1978 and is today classified as a substance to drug with a high probability for abuse. The interesting thing is... Cannabis is listed as a substance one. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Next on the list is what's known as ketamine. And it is also an anesthetic. It creates a calm and relaxed state in users and also relieves pain. And it has been available for prescription since the 1970s. Side effects include depression, dizziness, detached feeling for body, slurred speech, diminished reflexes, hallucinations... Nystagmus, which is repetitive, uncontrolled eye movement, chest pain, elevated or depressed heart rate, high blood pressure, but rarely low blood pressure, agitated nervous system, amnesia, delirium, increased body temperature, sudden onset of fear or panic, seizures, nausea and vomiting, kidney toxicity, increased salivation, severe brain damage, and overdose or death. The development dates back to 1962 and it was first synthesized by Calvin Stevens at the Park Davis Laboratories as an alternative for PCP for use as an anesthetic. It was patented in Belgium the following year and granted approval for use as as an anesthesia in 1965. The same year, recreational use of the drug was first recorded with Professor Edward Domino labeling ketamine as a, quote, dissociative anesthetic. It became available through prescription in 1969 and approved by the FDA for human consumption in, the 19, in 1970. It first saw use as a field anesthetic for American troops during the Vietnam War. Recreational use saw a surge during the 1980s with dealers substituting ecstasy for ketamine pills. However, the different effects would soon become apparent to users as they were complete opposites of each other, and it was eventually classified as a substance three drug by the DEA in 1981. There's not a lot I have on this because, to be honest, it's not a hugely popular drug. Ketamine? Yeah. Yeah. It's being studied a lot more now about, like, again, what kind of benefits it could have for dealing with mental illness, and, like, it has some interesting things on it well i mean with like overuse it really damages your brain absolutely yeah they're looking at it as like one-time use type and obviously it's different if you're going to be using it in that kind of setting oh yeah i mean all of these things pretty much can damage your brain except maybe cannabis but that's still (laughs) debated yeah and now we probably move on to what's the most i would see as one of the most known drug yeah, so the opiates. So I guess important first thing to mention is that there's a different, you'll hear the term opiate and opioid, and honestly, like I'll probably use them interchangeably, even though they kind of aren't really interchangeable. Um, opiates are the naturally occurring drugs that are like derived from opium. Opioids are synthetic, so they've been developed in labs. So opium specifically has been like, recorded use has been going on for ever literally. But it comes from the poppy plant, which is most commonly grown in Central Asia, largely. So India, China, 
Afghanistan, um, a lot of those countries grow the poppy. And that's where opiate or opium is derived from. Recreational opium use has been recorded as far back as like the 1500s and earlier throughout the Islamic world and in China. So like opium has always had a very uh, problematic past. It's always been really apparent how addictive it is. It was used largely by people for, um, <laughs> actually funny enough, to aid in masculinity. So <laughs> basically to aid in having sex. Uh, it, was, it was seen as something that was like beneficial to virility, to male virility in China, especially in China. But the, the, the known effects of opium in terms of like addiction have always been really, really clear because the British used it against China to make money. So you've probably all heard of the opium wars, but essentially what happened is that the British and China had a balanced trade sheet, which was detrimental to the British in terms of making money. And they saw that opium use was popular in China. It had become kind of a problem in China. Uh, so China had banned the, the production of opium in China. Full disclosure, I'm not really going off notes for this. I'm kind of just going off my memory. So there will probably be some corrections to make. Um, but anyways, uh, production of opium in China wasn't allowed. And so the British brought opium from India into China. And so they forced China to import opium. And it essentially wrecked the economy and created a huge dependence on opium for the population because they encouraged the use of it. But then her opium was synthesized into other drugs, such as morphine and heroin. Morphine came first. And then heroin was synthesized as a possible less addictive version of morphine, but that was obviously <laughs> not the case. Um, essentially, like the, the, the strength of opium, the reason why it is so popular for these types of drugs is that it is a painkiller. It blocks a lot of feelings of, of pain. It's really relaxing. It's really, um, it creates a lot of endorphins in your brain, and like you, you feel very, like, yeah, very relaxed. Uh, obviously, I have no experience personally with opiates, but my general understanding anyway. And so it works really well as a painkiller, and uh, so morphine was developed for medical uses, but then morphine became addictive. Opium itself became banned, or became illegal quite quickly over time, especially in North America. What really triggered it in the United States was the prevalence of opium dens in San Francisco amongst Chinese immigrants uh, who were there to work on the railroads, so it caused panic. But they developed uh, morphine, and then morphine led to more addiction other people but it was a useful painkiller and it's still used i mean the thing about opiates and opioids is that they're really tricky to get rid of because they are actually of all the drugs on this list probably the most proven in terms of their medical utility but also have the most like destructive addictive <laughs> habits as well so that's always been the struggle of of people dealing with with opium and opiates then also now opioids is that they have these really great redeemable qualities in terms of, of medical use and actual positive use for people but they're so problematic. <laughs> well, I mean, if you've had uh, any, if you've had, if you've gone to the hospital for pain, like in Co severe well, pain, even codeine. You're codeine. Codeine giving, is an opiate. Pain yeah, you're given codeine, but you've probably also been given morphine. Um, they actually don't give it out quite as hard as they used to. No, but they do in very severe. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've never. Yeah, I've never been given morphine. I've actually. I don't think I've ever had an opiate. Or opioid like painkiller of any kind. I think I I think I have, but I don't remember. But anyway. <laughs> so yeah, I guess mostly like I don't know. There's a lot about the history of opium and whatnot, and just for time, it's kind of not really worth going into all of it. But um, yeah, morphine was a really big discovery, and so was heroin. Heroin was also in, included in a lot of things like cough medicines. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just, 
it was included in a lot of things like like that. Like over the counter remedies had a lot of heroin. <laughs> and then uh Well cocaine as well. And cocaine, yeah. I mean, obviously, Coca-Cola. I think the thing with opiates is that after, with the various world wars, people saw the really addictive capability of morphine, and that really scared people away from, like, prescribing opiates. And so, like, heroin use has been popular, and it became especially popular during the Vietnam War in the United States uh, with the America, like, the smuggling of heroin back into the U.S. So it became really popular, and it really, like, destroyed. Again, it kind of re- it did the same thing that crack would do later to a lot of poorer communities. And heroin use has always remained, like, pretty consistent, but it did go down for a long time. But then now we're seeing, as I'm sure some of you know, I don't know, the opiate crisis is too important not to talk about, so I'm going to talk about it. Some of the historical factors of the opiate crisis, though, are that because morphine was so addictive for so long, the prescription of pain medication has been very, very rigid in North America, and it still is in Europe, which is probably still good. But the biggest problem is that people were very scared to overprescribe pain medication or prescribe pain medication at all. So the treatment of pain in places like Canada and the United States has always been seen as a little bit barbaric because we're like so afraid to prescribe these drugs. But then companies like Purdue come forward with drugs like OxyContin and are like, we've isolated an opi- opioid compound that will do all these amazing things that we know opiates can do in terms of treating pain and treating chronic things like this, but it's not addictive and they paid doctors, et cetera to to say that it was fine and so these pills have been over over prescribed and heroin use has actually gone back up significantly because heroin is cheaper than prescription pain medications (laughs) and easier to get actually too so the irony about like drug legalization and like what classifies as an illegal narcotic is actually like really interesting and it becomes so the ironies become so abound when you're talking about this like opiate crisis because the legal drugs are harder to get than the illegal ones. Everyone thinks that by legalizing something, you're making it more accessible. And it's like, no, actually, it somehow gets harder to use because it's harder to abuse it, in theory, because you have to get a prescription to get these pills. So heroin use has spiked, and the Mexican cartels are making so much money (laughs) on importing heroin into the United States and into Canada. And uh, I don't know about the rates of heroin use in Canada, how much they've gone up, but I do know that fentanyl is... Fentanyl has hit Canada particularly hard. Our fentanyl supply mostly comes from China because it's fentanyl is an opioid, so it is a manufactured synthetic opiate. It does not come from opium in any way. It's not distilled from opium from the plant of any kind. So it is a purely lab-manufactured chemical. And so the thing about that is that it can also be shipped into Canada very easily because you can send like $100,000 worth of fentanyl in an envelope, like a, a letter envelope. And if it's under a certain amount of weight, there's like a regulation that you don't have to, to check them or you can't check them or something at the border. So, I don't know. I don't really know where I'm going with this other than it's just, like, a really... It's a big issue. It's a big issue. This Well, a study just was published that in the last couple of years, like, 20,000 Canadians have died from opiate-related... Yeah. Well, my, my friend, a friend of mine two years ago got, had weed that was laced with fentanyl and it killed him. It was the only time he ever had it. You don't need a lot of fentanyl. Like, it does not take a lot of fentanyl to kill somebody. That's the scary thing. Like, you hear about people using, like, large amounts of fentanyl. These are usually people who are addicted to heroin beforehand. But they're not even using, like, large amounts of fentanyl. They're using large amounts of heroin, and there's, like, a little bit of fentanyl in it that, like, gets them most of the time. Because it's, like, I can't remember the actual dosage, but it's extraordinarily small 
how much fentanyl you actually need to like. That's why it, typically fentanyl, when it's prescribed, comes in a patch form because it's slow release. Yeah. So the Calgary police did a really interesting PSA about the fentanyl because usually how people are buying fentanyl in the street form is in a pill and it's like a sugar pill that has some fentanyl in it. It's just cut with sugar and then pressed into pills. And the Calgary police did actually a uh, kind of a PSA about the problem, obviously, is that some pills are going to have more fentanyl than others just because it's not exactly like the most scientific of cutting processes. <laughs> um, they're not really going for, for even quality. It's hard to guarantee. Drug dealers definitely don't give a shit about the safety of their, qual- really. of their product. Oh, uh, so the statistic was more than 10,000 Canadians have died from opioid-related overdoses since 2016. And 10,000 people doesn't seem like a lot in a country of 36 million, but, I mean, that's not including the countless who are currently addicted or have overdosed multiple times and survived. Yeah, it's really difficult to see happen. Just so that this doesn't end on a very depressing note. Shout out to this cool little podcast I found and that's based in Seattle. Or it's actually based in Tacoma specifically called Finding Fixes. And it's a whole podcast literally dedicated to combating the opioid crisis and trying to find fixes. And it's really interesting. They're sort of dealing with their, it's two journalists who are in Tacoma and they're doing or in that area. And it was really, it was really interesting. And it's also kind of uplifting. It's, it's a nice change. I've done a lot of personal research on this like whole thing and kind of understanding what's happening and why it's happening. And uh, I don't always need to read more about why we're in this mess. It's kind of nice to read more positive like ideas about how to get past it or at least how to fix it. Right. So that's like <laughs> some positivity on the end of the opiate front. Yeah. We didn't talk a lot about opiates in this one. I mean, in terms of the actual history of them. And I feel like we should have, but at the same time, like... We're going to get into a history We'll get of more into them. I mean, point. we're not going to be able to avoid the opium wars. Like, I actually... No. So, sorry if we let you down at the end of this little episode here, but we're... Well, I mean, we're already running way over time. We're way over time. So, we don't so. want to break the Korean War record. <laughs> no. So, but um, just really quickly, uh, there's an author out there, very famous science fiction author, Philip K. Dick. He wrote Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which later became Blade Runner, and he's written a bunch of other stuff. He wrote a book called A Scanner Darkly, which is about the drug war. It's a fictionalized version of it. But at the end, he includes a very powerful message. He was uh, personally addicted to amphetamines. And he re- he saw what what it damage it did to his life and to his body and the what it did to his friends. This is what he had to say about it. Quote, when a bunch of people begin to do it, it's a social error, a lifestyle. In this particular lifestyle, the motto is be happy now because tomorrow you are dying. But the dying begins almost at once and the happiness is a memory. He then goes on to list a whole ton of people he knew who are now either permanently disabled or dead from their afflictions. And after this long list, he says, they remain in my mind and the enemy will never be forgotten. The enemy was their mistake in playing. Let them all play again in some other way and let them be happy. And personally knowing people who've gone through addiction and are recovering from addiction, I definitely do believe that they deserve to be happy. Yeah, I agree. I'm actually like real quick, and this is super, this is a coming in hot with this take. So I'm actually becoming more and more in favor of the legalization of all drugs because um, I don't think that we'll ever be able to properly combat issues like addiction without 
controlling the drugs. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is that I think it's arrogant to assume that I don't even, I don't think arrogance is the word. I think it's naive to assume that no one's ever going to use these drugs because they are, people are always going to use them. And everyone, every consenting adult kind of has that right to, to use mind altering, to alter their consciousness as they feel. Um, my former supervisor, Dr. Hoffman, she kind of made this point, like consenting adults should have the ability to alter their consciousness, how they see fit, because you have the ability to do that with everything else, right? You have the right to your own body. So you should have the right to your own mind. But just from a like harm reduction standpoint, efforts, like small trials of, you know, something that's been working pretty well in Vancouver is there's this little clinic that's, uh, it's a trial, but it's funded by the government. It's a small clinic. They only service probably like 30 patients, maybe more, but they, uh, these patients have proven that they cannot get off of opiates on their own and they've tried and they can't. And so they're essentially being given government issued heroin and they're being dosed essentially. Because the thing about, I think people don't really realize with opiate addiction in particular, is that most of the time these people aren't actually getting high. They're just doing enough to keep their body from withdrawing. So they're not even really high most of the time. They're actually just like trying to not get sick. Because <laughs> opiate withdrawals will kill you. Or they can if it's not monitored properly. A lot of people die. A lot of people die. Uh, what so. I'm definitely in favor for is instead of punishing addicts, punish the dealers and the producers. Yeah. So I, don't I also think that's why I'm in favor of legalization is because in, rea- in reality, like you can't really punish those people without punishing within the, in a current system. You can't arrest drug dealers and people like that without arresting the people that are buying the drugs because you can't get to the dealers. I think we're going to forego the good news of the day for today, just because we've run out of time. We're going to end it there. Um, stay tuned. In a couple weeks, we're coming back with the Titanic. And we're going to try and get through the whole episode without mentioning Celine Dion. Oh, shit. Okay. Um, I already failed. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so look, stay. If you want a drinking game, that'll be a drinking game. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So stay tuned to that. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. And oh, and for any Calgary listeners, Trivia, Village Brewery, April 26th. Be there or be square. Definitely. We got some great prizes. Check out the Facebook page. All right. uh, So anyway, we're rambling now. So thank you so much for listening. You can hear Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds playing now. So we're going to leave you with that. So my name is Jonah and I'm signing off. And Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Have a good one.